Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Tom, we have a great show today. We do indeed. Uh, you know, we have a lot of people that are asking us questions all the time about canon law. You are correct. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to do a show about canon, canon law. law. There you go. Very Look good. The odds. <laughs> it's good that we're on the same page, yes. too. Yes. Awesome. So, you know, we thought in order to do a show about canon law, we Might should actually bring idea. in a canon lawyer. Might be a good idea. Yeah. So we have uh, Father Adam Rust, and Father Rust is a canon lawyer. Thank you. Glad to be back. On the show. That's right. Well, Father Rush, you were with us before, told us your vocation story, uh, and that was a, a wonderful thing, and we had uh, lots of people uh, positively respond to that story, and so we're glad, to A, that you're here again, and B, that you're still a priest, and that's always nice. <laughs> always, always a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But we also, what a, what a blessing that you're a canon lawyer, so we want to find out more about canon law. We figured you'd be the guy to tell us all about that. Yeah, canon law is uh, one of the you know important aspects of the church, and, and I was sent away uh, for three years by the bishop here in Memphis. Sent away is not a negative thing. Though, no, no, a lot no. of times we hear that we sent, he was sent away by the bishop. I was sent for further studies. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, by, the, by our bishop, uh, Terry Stibe, to go uh, get my degree in canon law, to come back and help uh, him here in the diocese with regards to uh, any canonical legal affairs uh, that are going on. Well, what we should do is we should first, let's just address that question. A lot of people are confused. I have people ask me all the time, what is canon law? And do I even have to listen to it? And so what, what is canon law? Let's just let's start way there at that 30,000-foot view. All right. What is canon law? Perfect. Canon law is the law of the Catholic Church with regards to her organization. Um, I had a, one of the professors at the law school he said, if two people live together, they don't need rules. But when you have three people who live together, you need rules. You need to know where are the keys, who goes shopping, who does the chores. If I go to find the keys and they're not there and then just one other person lives with me, I know who has them. Uh-huh. But there's two people living there with me, then I need to know what are the rules. And so the church kind of has that same understanding. You need the rules so that everyone knows how to act. And the big part of canon law really uh, is regarding the, the rights and obligations of everyone who is in the church. What do I ought to do? What are my obligations as whatever I am, whether I'm a layperson or a pastor or a bishop or religious? Uh, but what also, what are my rights? What do I have a right to? And that's ultimately what canon law is about, is protecting these rights and obligations. Well, where should we, where do we get canon law? I mean, we, we people ask that question because we'll, we'll read our Bible and we'll see on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you know blessed are those who adhere to canon law. But that's not one of the... Uh, the Beatitudes, right? So, and I don't know that Jesus ever mentioned canon law anywhere in Scripture. So, where do we, as a church, come off even having a, a canon law? How do we? How, how does it? Where does it get its authority? I guess that's again an excellent question. The authority comes from the church itself. Comes from the um, lawgiver. The, the supreme lawgiver would be the Holy Father, uh, successor of Peter. Uh, and prior to 1917, 1917 was the first code of canon law in the church part of that you had all the 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 law came from the different councils different decretals uh different acts of the holy see and so the canon lawyers would would go over all these vast amount of documents try to figure out what are the rules in 1917 uh, they codified the rules in a document called the the code of canon law and the one we use today was codified in 1983 and so it's 83 code of canon law it is about 1752 canons that pretty much regulate Every aspect of church life, from um, the sacraments to the hierarchy to 
who are the people of God, um, and that pretty much helps us know how to act in the church, helps us know what are my rights, what do I have a right to, and what are my obligations to act as a faithful. Does that? Yeah, absolutely. And now, and but the code of canon law wouldn't be against anything that Jesus taught. In other words, obviously Jesus gave those keys to Peter, right? Gave him the authority uh, that that he has uh, had and that he's passed on apostolically to to all of his successors. And so essentially the code of canon law works in harmony with with the laws that Jesus laid down with the, with with his gospel. Absolutely. In fact, in, in the code there are two types of canons. There's uh, canons called um, doctrinal canons and there's instructional canons. The doctrinal canons pretty much are exactly talking about the, the doctrine, the teaching of the church with regards to, say, the sacraments. So the sacraments are for the sanctification of the Christian faithful. And that would be the first canon. The second canon would be then... How do you do a sacrament? For instance, baptism, that you need flowing water, that you need to not have been baptized to receive baptism, uh, who the minister of baptism is, who are the godparents. It pretty much instructs us how then to do what it is Jesus told us to do when he says, go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? How do we do it? Canon law tells us. Well, when this current code that we're, we're working with, the 1983 code that you mentioned, when it came out, uh, the, the Holy Father then at that time, John Paul II, uh, wrote this beautiful little uh, document that's basically, it's called the Laws of uh, Sacred Discipline. And in 1983, he wrote this he, to, to help us understand what the code was about. He says in chapter 16 or verse, paragraph 16, he says, the code is in no way intended as a substitute for faith grace and the charisms in the life of the church and of the faithful on the contrary its purpose is rather to create such an order in the ecclesial society that while assigning the primacy to faith grace and the charisms it at the same time renders easier their organic development in the life both of the ecclesial society and of the individual persons who belong to it so basically canon law he's saying is sort of gonna it's gonna help us along that path to to grace and to faith no that's absolutely right the, the very last canon uh canon 1752 says this the salvation of souls which must always be the supreme law in the church is to be kept before one's eyes so canon law understands that very clearly and says okay we are all sinners in this church striving to be saints we live in a fallen world how do we protect each other from abuse? And so you have this code saying, well, okay, how can we uh, promote what you just said, the, the faith, the grace, the charisms? Uh, so we, we've codified it. And we said, here's what happens. That way I know what is expected from me, and I know what's expected from you, and that I do what I'm supposed to do, and you do what you're supposed to do, and, and the Holy Spirit will be there to make sure that what he needs done gets done. Does that, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, and, and I, I would it would be important to note that the Catholic Church is not alone in coming up with rules. I mean, every organization, every ecclesial body, right, every church, regardless of all the Protestant churches, will have some kind of sort of code of conduct, some kind of organizational structure. This or is how we do things. Or contracts of tithing. If you're going right. to be a member of our church, you must tithe X percent of your income. It's in the rules. Right. There will be lots of ways that people come together as a community and then sort of how to design it. So that's what the Catholic Church is doing here. 
But that would beg the question, then, are these merely suggestions or are these really laws? I mean, we call this the code of canon law, and, that has, and we have these canon lawyers. And so we start to get the sense that it's just kind of like the U.S. Constitution or something or, uh, or all the, the laws in our legal system. It's definitely it's law in its truest sense where, um, again, certain canons, the instructional canons, for instance, I, I often go back to the sacraments. If they're not followed – then the sacraments would be considered invalid. So if you the, – the canon law says that baptism needs flowing water. If you try, decide to use oil or Coca-Cola or right. something other than water, you're not baptized. Hmm. So if you don't follow that code, you're not baptized. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is with all the all the codes. If you know codes regards to who is who becomes pastor of a church, how come I can't go to St. Louis Catholic Church here in Memphis, Tennessee, and tell the office staff, "Well, I'm now the pastor." Who makes me a pastor? If I just walk up and say, "Well, I'm now the pastor," does that mean I'm the pastor? No, because you need to have a decree from the bishop naming you as pastor. But what if he says to our current pastor, "You're no longer pastor there"? Can he do that? No, because the pastor has a right to be pastor, and there has to be a process that is gone right. through to remove a pastor. And process is the important word. This is, I mean, it, it makes, it's a systematic way of organizing this large structure. I mean, we all know the Catholic Church is, is huge. I mean, 1.2 billion or more Catholics in the world, at some point in time, someone's got to say, well, look, guys, here's how we're going to do things. Absolutely. And if we don't follow how we do those things, then essentially we, we sort of lose that sense of unity and we lose that sense of the body of Christ and we start to have an individualistic perspective. And actually, it goes back to even what the word Catholic means. The Catholic means universal. So if here in Memphis, if I can use the term pastor, does that mean the same thing that it does in Singapore or in Lisbon or in Nigeria? It, right. means, it needs to mean the same thing, and the code makes sure that's the case. And that also protects our rights as individual Catholics that when we go to a Mass or when we experience the sacraments, that when we experience anything in the ecclesial body, that we're experiencing the same thing that we would experience in any of those different places. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, again, though, as a, as a person that – does everyone need to go out and buy a copy of the Code of Canon Law? They're only like fifteen bucks. That's not that expensive. You know, you can get a copy of it if you're interested in reading that stuff. But uh, do we all need to start reading this like we read our catechism? No, I don't think so. Um, it's important, maybe, for those who are in um, leadership roles in the church, maybe, to have a code that they can reference. But a lot of it is you need to understand it in the text and the context. That's why the canon lawyers were trained for three years to understand where these codes came from. The fact that 1983, they didn't just write a code down. That's it, right. It had history to it. It was in the 17 code. It was in the decrees of uh, decretals of creation. It was in you know the Acts of the Holy See. It was in the, the different ecumenical councils. And to understand that development. Uh, but to have the codes important because there are some things in here that sometimes people don't know. For instance, one I always go to is the code uh, asks of all Catholics to abstain from meat on Fridays throughout the year. But the second paragraph says the, the local conference of bishops can deem to substitute that with something else. So here in this country, in America, we refrain from meat on Fridays during Lent. But throughout the year, we either have to abstain from meat or abstain from some other good. Right. We practice penance on every Friday. Every Friday. And that's in the code just, again, to kind of give us the guidelines to – Jesus gave us these principles in the scriptures. The code applies them in our current uh, situation in life. Well, great. We have much more to talk about in terms of the code of canon law and what it's all about. Uh, I have actually some some emails that we've gotten uh, with questions about uh, people always have 
questions about the, the Code of Canon Law. We'll try to answer some of those uh, right after this break. Before we do that, I want to remind everyone we have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. And also, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, check with your lawyers and then come right back. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Sir Thomas More rose to the very heights of earthly power in the service of King Henry VIII before losing his head in service to the Lord and to his church. While perhaps best known to American moviegoers as the man for all seasons, St. Thomas More is venerated in the Roman Catholic Church as a universal patron of statesmen. Thomas More was born in London on a cold and damp English February morning in the late 15th century. He was the eldest son of Sir John More, a prominent and well-respected lawyer, and his wife Agnes. As a young man, More was given into the household of Cardinal Morton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Lord Chancellor of England. The Cardinal took notice of More's many talents and arranged for him to continue his studies at Oxford. After two years, Moore returned to London to study law. He contemplated a religious vocation before deciding that his vocation was to the married state. And, once married, he took an active interest in the education of his children, insisting that their education be formed in the testimony of God and a good conscience. After his rise through various public offices, Moore was appointed Lord Chancellor of England in 1529. As Chancellor, Moore was keeper of the king's conscience, advising him on delicate matters of state. The intimacy of Sir Thomas and King Henry was tested and ultimately severed, however, by Henry's frustration that his queen, Catherine of Aragon, failed to present him with a son. In 1530, Sir Thomas refused to join in asking the Pope to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine. Two years later, Moore retired from public life hoping that he would thus be able to avoid an open breach with Henry on the question of succession and sovereignty. This was not to be, however, when he refused to subscribe to the oath of supremacy declaring King Henry supreme head of the church in England. Moore was imprisoned, tried, and convicted of treason. He was executed on July 6, 1535, at the Tower of London. In his ascent to the scaffold, Moore is reported to have said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. St. Thomas More, the man who introduced the word integrity to the English language, died a martyr to his conscience, but is celebrated now as a saint of the Catholic Church. He is the patron saint of lawyers, and his feast day is celebrated by the Universal Church on June 22nd. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and we're talking with Father Adam Rust. And Father Adam Rust, I mean, you're our favorite kind of attorney because you don't bill by the quarter hour, which is, <laughs> is really nice for you to be here uh, and join us and help us to understand what canon law is. And Tom... 
Yeah, you had a great question. Tell me, help me with help me with your question about canon law. Yeah, no, I'm just one of the regular Joes out there, and and so when I hear you talking about canon law, I'm thinking about catechism. It sounds like it might be redundant. Is is it kind of redundant there? No, that's a good question. Um, I think the catechism would be more of the what we believe and why we believe it, and the canon law would be how then do we live it? Mm-hmm. So how do we do what we believe? That right. makes, is that yeah, and that's kind of like I think what the, what John Paul II was saying was that this canon law was sort of it, it sort of gave a basis, a foundation for a structure, a framework, right, around which we could build this grace and faith and the charisms of the church. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the Catholic, Catholic Church is a, is a wonderful, beautiful document. Also, that came uh, to us as a gift from John Paul II, mm-hmm. right, d- during uh, his pontificate. And so, hand in hand, those things again they work. Uh, together in harmony, mm-hmm. but of course you're saying that a lot of people don't need to go out and just start buying their canon law and start memorizing canons and start no, throwing canons at your pastor because that will make you your his favorite parishioner. Won't yeah. it? <laughs> if you're going to memorize anything, I say memorize scripture. There you go. Yeah, Very good. good. You Excellent. can't go wrong there. And also, I guess we should also point out that while canon law is a, is a great gift to the church and the idea that we have some organized structure, we have to be careful of being sort of pharisaical, right? We yeah. where we suddenly come keepers of the law and not the spirit of the law and understanding why that canon that you read at the very end, the final canon, right, the salvation of souls, that that, that would be the, the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Is it, we need to keep that in the fore versus the sort of legalistic approach to our Catholicism. Absolutely. That's the whole point. The whole point of the church is the means of salvation mm-hmm. for the people of God. Mm-hmm. And so canon law is this structure, this framework for the church to make that happen, to make sure that the people have what they need to get to heaven. Well, there are lots of interesting... Uh, we get emails all the time, and one of the emails I get about canon law specifically usually hinges around something like abortion mm. and uh, also this idea of uh, an automatic excommunication. And that can be confusing for some people, so help us, uh, Father Rust, understand what, what that, is that automatic excommunication thing all about. Okay, that's, um, I get that question actually a lot as well, and it's an important thing... Um, for us to understand, it's funny you, you bring this up. Actually, the, my, the first kind of homily complaint I ever got, it was a, uh, this lady who uh, called up my pastor with a rant because I'd mentioned excommunication uh, with regards to the, the sin of abortion in one of my homilies, and she didn't think it's something that we should have been talking about, uh, that people can be excommunicated, because she, again, ultimately she didn't really understand what the excommunication is. Uh, it is a penalty the church has. Uh, she, the church refers to it as a medicinal penalty. The, the point is it's, it's medicine. Uh, what the church is saying is what you have done is so serious that you are no longer in communion with the church. You need to fix the problem and come back. So the goal of excommunication is to bring people back into the church. It's not a punishment per se. It is in terms of... It's a I, penalty, I the, not right, a punishment. Right. Punishment would be almost retribution, like you, you earned this, this is... Which you did in the excommunication, but the, but the goal is that you would there would be rehabilitation. There. Absolutely, that's the, the goal. Because we go back to the point is the salvation of souls. So you've done something so bad, and there's there's only a few uh, of these excommunications that are considered latte sententiae, which means at the moment of the act you have excommunicated yourself. Speaking hmm. ill of a deacon is one of those, right? Is that, <laughs> that one actually has has been changed. So. <laughs> it's encouraged, <laughs> but but some of them. These latitudinous excommunications is if, if you're a, an apostate, a heretic, or a schismatic. That's from the, from that moment you're excommunicated. Um, if you 
uh, profane the Blessed Sacrament, if you profane the Eucharist, if you you know use it in a black mass or um, you know throw it down the sink, you know things like that, th- you know disregard it, step on right. it, um, you know purposefully, you profane it, you're automatically excommunicated. If you attack the Pope, you're excommunicated. If you uh, if a priest forgives someone who he's an accomplice with in the sin against the Sixth Commandment, he's automatically excommunicated. Um, if a bishop consecrates another bishop without a papal mandate, so without the Pope's permission, that bishop is automatically excommunicated. If mm. um, you violate the sacred seal, if a priest uh, mentions what he heard in the sacrament of confession to someone else, he's automatically excommunicated. This is why you will never hear priests reveal ever anything. And that you, we, we see big Hollywood movies about priests you know, going to their grave or going to jail or going wherever they have to go rather than re, uh, reveal what was hmm. uh, ex- uh, told them in the confessional. And then the final one is if you procure or help someone procure an abortion, you're automatically excommunicated. So it's important for us to hear in that list to realizing um, other than the last one, these are really rare things to do, and but also they're extremely grave. I mean, you, you're you're making a statement when you do those things yes. that you are you are actively working against the body of Christ. At that point, you've you've decided that either you know better, or for whatever reason, you don't believe what the church believes in a very very serious way. It's not just having a a casual dislike of the Pope or wishing you had a different pastor or what. It's, things like this are not going to be. Um, excommunicable offenses, but but there are certain things that rise to that level that the church has to address and say, mm-hmm. when we get here, um, this is serious stuff. Absolutely, and abortion is one of those. That, that last one there, uh, and we and we experience this. And I, and, well, I think one of the, the the emails I get the most are the people who may in their past have either had an abortion as a younger person, uh, and maybe they, they really feel bad about that. But then they're wondering, like, am I excommunicated? You know, and that's a, that's a thing we should need, we should talk about and help people uh, work through. And that, or maybe they know somebody, or they encourage somebody to have an abortion, and they didn't realize that people who provide abortions, people who drive somebody to an abortion clinic with the goal of assisting them in getting an abortion, that they're included in this hmm. in this canon as well. And so people want to know what are the what to what degree is all this stuff held bound, and 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 how are we to reckon with all that. Yeah, that's a lot right there. Yeah. Um, excommunication is talking about a spiritual reality because you've been excommunicated. You committed abortion. No one knows about it. God knows about it, but no one else knows about it. Um, you're excommunicated. Can you still perform your duties in the church? Can you still be a Eucharist minister? Can you still be a reader? Well, no one knows. You're forbidden from being those things, but if no one knows, how do they know? But God knows. And so the, the purpose of this communication to, to, to let people know this truth, and it's a hard truth, but what they just did was a hard reality. Reality um, is to say, we, we need you to go to confession. We need you to be reconciled with the church. Now, this list of excommunications, they're all reserved to the Holy See to be forgiven. So if you do go to the priest in confession, he then needs to give you an anonymous name. So I'll call you Jane Doe. I'm a write letter to the Holy See and get them to reconcile you back in the church. The exception is abortion. The Holy Father has given bishops the choice to give them, them has given them the faculties, and then some bishops have then in turn given the, their priests the faculties. So in this Diocese of Memphis, I, as a priest, have the faculty to uh, re-communicate someone when, if they come to me with this 
a particular sin in confession, I can absolve them from the sin and reconcile them back to the church. The the reason, again, that, that these are excommunicable offenses is because of their gravity, that they are so severe. The church wants you to realize that, like, of course, all sin and all mortal sin, you know, kills our relationship with God. This sin also kills our relationship with this body on earth, the church, uh, that they're very severe. And he and the church wants us to realize that and to come back and commune with her. There's uh, also some exceptions to this. It, it's not a hard and fast thing here in terms of there are times when people may commit this really, really grievous offense, but maybe not be in the full state of the ability to make that decision. Well, tell us about that. Well, in Canon uh, 1323 talks about those who are not uh, capable of receiving this penalty. Um, one, the person who's not yet committed, completed the 16th year of age. So if you're under 16, you cannot be excommunicated. If you're 15 years old, you have an abortion because you're not capable of receiving the penalty. It's still a sin, Absolutely. right? But it's not an excommunicable offense. Absolutely, because you're not yet reached the age of maturity in the church. Uh, or the person who, without negligence, was ignorant that he or she violated a law or a precept. But one connected to this is a person who acted coerced by grave fear, even if only relatively grave, or due to a necessity or grave inconvenience unless the act is intrinsically evil or tends to do the harm of souls. So someone who, um, 16, 17-year-old girl, afraid of her father, kicking her out of the house, had this abortion, she may not be excommunicated. It's still a sin. She still needs to go to confession. Or if her boyfriend drove her, you know, so this obviously right. is not just to women, but, uh, you know, anyone involved in this act, um, they still need to go to confession. The, the most important thing to do in all of this, though, is, is to come back to the church. Absolutely. Is to let the church heal you, to come back, to go to confession, seek out a spiritual director, seek out a priest, and, and tell them uh, everything. And it is such a healing moment for you to come back into the church, and, uh, that's, and that's the goal. Absolutely. Uh, Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humble. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. I see that lived most clearly in the sacrament of confession because there's nothing more humbling, at least for me, mm-hmm. than to confess my sins to someone else, uh, knowing that I'm doing so to God. And when I hear those words of absolution, knowing that God has just exalted my soul uh, back to heaven, is um, that's the, the purpose of all this, is to get the, us to humble ourselves and realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And again, back to that very last canon that you read, we're all meant to go to heaven. God wants us all in heaven, and the salvation of souls is the most important thing, and we should be, be always thinking about that, especially when, we, when something like the Code of Canon Law comes into effect. That's what we, we're looking at these, these codes and saying, this is all here to help us, Absolutely. to help us get to heaven. Absolutely. Father Russ, thank you so much for shedding a little light on the Code of Canon Law. We really appreciate it. I know you have important lawyering duties and priest duties you know, <laughs> that you've got to get to, so we thank you for the time to, uh, uh, that you spent joining us here. My at pleasure. The Cafe. My pleasure, as always. Well, can you uh, do us the honor of closing in prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you all thanks and praise for the many blessings you've given to us. We ask you to especially help us to live the two greatest commandments, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us to do these things so we're closer to you. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. St. Thomas More, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at 
thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.